Today on Ag News Daily. One of the points which we thought was really interesting, we do a lot of work around trust and trust in food production is a really important topic. Uh, What we saw this year, interestingly, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, today is Thursday, but it was also WASDE Report Day uh, for the markets. And I think it's going to be an interesting one to talk about, Delaney. I saw your tweet earlier talking about corn, and I've seen a couple of different headlines. So hopefully you've got some good stuff prepared for us. I certainly do. We can kick things off here talking about WASTI if you want to indulge me in that market talk here right off the bat, Ashton. Of course, I'm ready for it. All right, perfect. So yeah, I did did send out a tweet today on Twitter. So I'll just go into that here really quickly since you brought that up, Ashton. But um, basically, the big headline from today's report that we'll just kick things off with right away is that we saw a big reduction to corn yield estimates on today's WASDE report. And so I was looking back through some historical data today just to see you know, what typically happens on the August report. And Karen Braun, who we've had on the podcast, it's been quite some time. She's a reporter for Reuters, had an interesting article. I think it was yesterday she published it, but basically just talking about how most of the time market analysts tend to get this one wrong because they either overestimate or underestimate the bushels per acre that they anticipate USDA to drop. So the big headline today was that we saw a reduction to corn yield estimates by five bushels, almost five bushels per acre. It came in at 4.9 bushels per acre, but that is honestly one of the biggest, if not maybe the biggest, I was trying to look this up, might be the biggest drop in a one month period that we've seen ever, at least for quite some time. But I tweeted out and and basically said, you know, farmers do agree with this estimate. And we saw a lot of, I saw a lot of people saying, yes, absolutely. Saw some people saying that five was not low enough and that there is, like we've been talking about, a lot of variance around the Midwest. So as far as actual WASD numbers go, Ashton, the big one, like I said, there was basically corn and uh, and wheat. Those two proved to have a pretty bullish report. We saw, like I mentioned, their production lowered significantly to a national yield of a 174.6. So the other thing we're going to have to talk about here as we continue with Market Mondays is our stocks to use ratio. And we'll talk a little bit more about that on Monday. But we also saw a pretty big reduction for all around wheat. Ending stocks were cut from last month's 665 million bushels to a 627 million this month, down 25% from last year. We saw markets react pretty positively following the release of the report. Um, And then on the soybean side of things, it was kind of a neutral to maybe slightly, really, it was pretty much just neutral. And the reason I say that is we did see soybean ending stocks remain unchanged, We also saw a very, very, very slight reduction in yield there, like 0.8 of a bushel. So not a big drop, but we also saw a reduction in crush and export. So kind of a non-report for soybeans, but certainly one to write home about uh, for corn and wheat both. The big question that I have in my mind now, Ashton, and I know you're still learning all this market talk and, and understanding it all, but 
really a five bushel per acre yield reduction is a big deal. And we saw markets react. We didn't see a limit today, which I was a little surprised about. But I'm curious to see how the markets trade this news moving forward, because that's a that's a big deal. So I'll just I'll just leave it there. But that's kind of my take on today's report. Well, Delaney, I'm glad that you were staying on top of that. And hey, I'm I'm really trying to get the hang of this whole market thing. I read a couple of different things today, although I probably didn't really savor as much information as I probably should have, just because that terminology still kind of goes over my head a little bit. But I am really trying here. So you got to give me credit for something. I think you're doing a great job. You were just going to keep getting you more acclimated with the markets. Well, Delaney, I have a story to kick things off today talking about African swine fever. Of course, we've been watching the development as it's been traveling across the globe. And there's been some question on what we would do if it ever reached the U.S. Of course, you and I got to hear a couple of different things when we were at World Pork Expo earlier this summer. But now the USDA is putting together documentation showing trading patterns mitigation efforts if African swine fever was to ever come into the U.S. USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services, Dr. Rosemary Seifert, says, said that if African swine fever enters the U.S., there would likely be a 72-hour movement standstill for pigs and for semen. She said that this would give us the opportunity to really evaluate where exactly we have an issue, what exactly the extent of that issue is, so that we could look for signs of disease and get the control measures in place quickly. Seifert said that any pigs already in transit would be allowed to reach their destinations. She also said that if ASF is found in any U.S. provinces like Puerto Rico, the U.S. would be considered infected. So this plan would still, I think, go into effect there, but just in those provinces. She said that further restrictions would likely be placed in states where the disease was found, and APHIS would work directly with state animal health officials. So I, I'm glad that we have this ready to be in place if there was to any be ever be African swine fever detected in the U.S., but really, really hoping that we never have to use this plan. No, I, I think so as well. You know, I hear mixture of views. Some folks think it's just inevitable. Others think that, hey, as long as we keep biosecurity and measures like this in place, we should be doing okay. So I don't know. I really hope we don't see that happen. That will just completely devastate our hog herd. That's for sure. But Ashton, I want to take things over here and chat uh, weather for just a moment. Weather slash markets, I suppose you could say. We did see two or three export sales today of more product heading to China and Mexico. So it appears those two are staying right in line here with demand. The other big thing that I've been watching today has been weather. So I think we might have been a couple weeks now since we had Eric on. I can't even remember, honestly, Ashton. I know I chatted with him when you were out one day, but... Oh, he, I believe he and I talked about, and I'd have to go back to listen to this episode because I talked to him actually weekly for my role at Trader PhD. But we've been talking a lot about lately the weather pattern that we're starting to head into here. And that's the La Nina weather pattern. And so basically, of course, that would cause some cooler temperatures. Um, it would really help with rainfall and some of those things. But Recent analysts, recent meteorologists are putting out today that there's basically a 62% chance that a La Nina weather pattern 
will take hold across the Pacific between the months of September and November. So we would see drier during harvest, cooler temperatures, but longer term that should bring rains back into the Midwest uh, next year, you know, for planting time. So that, of course, would be welcome there. But um, it's not necessarily super positive for folks that are already experiencing quite a bit of drought because really the this La Nina pattern, from what I understand and read, and I'm no meteorologist, Ashton, but it would place a lot of that drier pattern around the Pacific Northwest. You know, the Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, these areas that are already dry. So while it does pose to be positive for folks in the Midwest heading into harvest, not so positive for those folks that are still currently in some pretty severe drought areas. Well, Delaney, we have been keeping our eyes out on the container shortage and some issues that are going on logistically there. And this next story might just add to the mix as there's been congestion off of China's top two container ports, Shanghai and Ningbo, as they are worsening following the shutdown of a container terminal where a COVID-19 case was detected this week. As the Delta variant is surging across the world, there's been tighter restrictions to fight China's latest outbreak, and it's starting to hit more parts of the economy. 40 container vessels were waiting at a port, and that's up from 30 on August 10th when a worker at a different container terminal tested positive for COVID-19. So we're now at 40 container vessels here, and you think about how many containers are actually on these vessels, I definitely am going to bet on there being even more issues logistically when it comes to containers. But I am not exactly sure what they're doing with these COVID-19 cases. I didn't really see that in the article that I was reading. Um, but I'm interested to see, you know, what goes on, you know, here in the U.S. in particular when it comes to COVID-19 and the Delta variant. But also interested to see what happens, you know, here in the near future when it comes to this container issue, because it's one that we haven't talked about in a while, but also one that I don't think an end is really in close sight. No, it certainly doesn't sound that way. But you know, as far as like a major commodity outlook goes, I don't think we've seen that impact too much for shipping concerns. I would say, though, that some of our specialty, you know, nuts and fruits and things like that probably are feeling the most effect as far as um, shipping container, you know, prices increased there and, and transportation overall, I'm sure is logistically just a nightmare. But speaking of logistics and infrastructure, Oh, I am not more. I cannot be more proud of this segue here, Ashton, because I wanted to talk about the infrastructure bill that's just passed in the Senate. It was a long process, as I think I commented on the other day, but the Senate has officially passed a one trillion with a T bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is the first of two infrastructure deals. So this current one trillion dollar one includes about $2 billion with a B allotted towards rural development programs such as telemedicine and broadband expansion. But it also, more importantly, includes about $550 billion in new spending for roads and bridges and waterways, as well as railways. So hopefully we'll see some improvement to our barge system. I know that's been pretty out of date. Um, and so now this is going to head to the Senate. It's expected to get some 
strenuous undertaking, as I think I've mentioned before, a lot of tension there around that one. Basically, uh, the Senate wants to see how theirs plays out in the House before they're willing to vote and sign off on the on the uh, House's version. So could be a lot of back and forth here as we negotiate these two final components. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news for today. I'm going to save some other stories that I saw, of course, to include in our weekly network newsletter that will go out tomorrow. But other than that, I am all done with news for the day. I have just one other quick piece of news that I wanted to mention here today because I've been doing a little digging. I shouldn't say I have, but people that I work with, I have assigned to look more into uh the price of cropland as well as rent. And this one came as not a surprise, I suppose, but I definitely wanted to bring this to our listeners' attention because as we're continuing to watch the value of farmland hold steady, we're also seeing, of course, cash rent increase sharply. And so the American Farm Bureau Federation put out a recent report assessing the USDA's latest report on land values. And they said based on their survey conducted in June, the National Agricultural Statistics Service found that cash rents were up on average about 1.4% from 141 an acre from 2020. And despite a jump in cropland values of 8% as a whole to 4,420 per acre, this has been the largest increase since 2013. So I've gotten a lot of folks when I've been out traveling at events that have asked me, when are we going to see farmland prices finally you know, start to peter out? Because we really have seen an increase, either an increase or at least held steady at these elevated levels for quite some time. So unfortunately, I don't know, I don't want to speculate too much, but it almost feels like the days of having cheap farmland are maybe behind us. Well, Delaney, what do you say we go ahead and get into the markets here? I know you said that we didn't touch limit with corn, but where did they end? Well, we certainly closed up higher, but uh, we did not touch the limit. We traded about 25, 27 cents higher following today's release of the report. We pulled back a little bit since then, um, but we still finished pretty high overall. Today in the September corn contract up 10 and three quarters cents to close at 567. The DSEP up 14 cents to close at 573 and a quarter. In the soybean pits today, again, these also had a positive reaction at first to the report, but we really didn't see that action follow through. I think they were up maybe as much as 10 to 15 cents following the report. And uh, we really pulled back significantly since then. September corn unchanged today to close at 1347. November up a penny to close at 1341. And in the wheat pits today, let's talk Chicago wheat today. They had a pretty massive explosion to the upside here as the September contract added 26 and a half cents to close at 753 and a half the dece up 25 and a half cents to close at 764 and three quarters and in the livestock pits we had pretty much strength all across the screen today as the August excuse me as the October live cattle contract added 92 and a half cents to close at 128.50. The Dickies up 77.5 cents to close at 139.95. And in feeder cattle today, the September contract up 72.5 cents to close at 163.55. The October up 32.5 cents to close at 165.62 and a half. Now in lean hogs today, we did see some action today to the upside. 
October adding 62.5 cents to close at 86.47.5. The Dees up a dollar to close at 79.90. And wrapping things out here with the Class 3 Dairy Milk Futures. We saw weakness today as the September contract lost 30 cents to close at 16.94. The October ending the day out at 17.31, down 19 cents on the day. Ashton, without further ado, listen on who we're talking to for today's interview. Well, we are talking to two individuals today about Food Think. Well, today we are talking to co-CEOs Ali Mahaffey and John January talking about signal theory and food think. I just want to thank you guys before we t- start talking about um, a very interesting topic. I want to thank you guys both for coming on and talking to us today. Well, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So before we really get started on having our conversation, and I'm not going to give it away just yet, but I want to know a little bit more about Food Think. You know, what is Food Think? How did the idea come about to even establish Food Think? All of those kinds of things. Well, we, well, Food Think was started in back in 2012. If anyone remembers the good old days of 2012, <laughs> and at Signal Theory, we had really started to focus around food and how it's produced, how it's sold, how it's consumed. And our clients really aligned with that entire food waste system. We wanted to get smarter for our clients and for the industry on what consumer perceptions were and what are how are they changing around the food waste system. So in 2012, We set out, started our first consumer survey. We surveyed 2,000 consumers to understand um, how they're interacting with the food waste system, how they shop, where they shop, how they're preparing food, uh, how much trust they have in the food waste system. So every two years since 2012, we've conducted a similar survey, sometimes the same questions, sometimes adding in new ones. We study what's going on, and how things are changing within the food waste system. So we just released our fifth wave of research, which was conducted at the end of 2020. And it really has a lot of insight about America's relationship with food. And before we get started talking about your latest release, I want to ask if you have ever seen data or if your research has ever shown anything similar to what your latest one did, because I'm looking at the numbers and I mean, 84% of American consumers have shifted their food and shopping behaviors in some way, you know, over the past year. Have you, have you seen data like this before, or is this something new to you guys? The pandemic really, I think, I think shifted a lot of a lot of people's behaviors, and I guess maybe shifted is is um, maybe not the right word. Perhaps what it did is accelerate consumer behavior uh, toward more more of the online shopping, and something that I think we could get into a little bit later is is also kind of taking a look at local food sheds, giving local food sheds maybe more of a uh, of a look than, than they had had in the past. We can get into that a little bit later. But no, the, the pandemic really did sort of, there were trends that, that, that were already there. And the pandemic just put the pedal to the metal in terms of um, 
you know, things like Instacart or, you know, getting groceries through DoorDash or things, things like that. And another interesting thing that the pandemic did was it really, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about um, here at Signal Theory is people, human beings, really, if you you boil it down, are looking for joy, comfort, meaning in their lives, um, sort of every day and kind of in everything that they do. And that really got demonstrated uh, with the pandemic and people really turning toward comfort foods, towards um, brands that maybe they had not uh, spent time with since they were kids. So suddenly, you know, you've got the Oreos and the Twinkies and mac and cheese and, and those sort of center aisle stuff kind of showing back up, up in American pantries uh, because people just were, again, sort of seeking that, that comfort um, during, during that time. I want to dive into the data a little bit more here because I gave one of those numbers away, but what are some other things that you guys picked up on, on your latest release and how consumer demand really shifted? The one, uh, one of the points, which we thought was really interesting, we do a lot of work around trust and trust in food production is a really important topic. Uh, What we saw this year, interestingly, is friends and family, as far as who people trust, friends and family has always been in the lead. That hasn't shifted much until this year. And farmers and ranchers jumped ahead as being um, at the top of that trust gauge. So consumers are looking to and trust farmers and ranchers to tell them the truth about what they're producing and give them insight and make them smarter about the choices, the choices that they're making, um, you know, in the grocery store, at restaurants, wherever they are. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, it's, I, I think that's interesting. And what's, if, if we, if you look at the data through the years, farmers and ranchers have always had a high level of, of trust. This is the first year that the data would indicate that they passed friends, friends and family <laughs> on that list. And, and I, I just, I, again, I, I think it goes back to um, people are asking a lot of questions and have been, as you know, uh, for some time about how my, how is my food produced? Um, where's it coming from? I want to make, I want to make these good choices for my family. And I think it's critical for agriculture to understand the story that they have to tell. Because those questions maybe are not showing up so much, um, you know, every day uh, on the farmer ranch, but they are showing up in the grocery store. They're showing up at brands, you know, you know, brand brands will get asked these questions. Um, and so I think, you know, we're big supporters and believers in, in, in American agriculture. And we have a lot of great clients um, with, within that realm. And, we think it's important that agriculture is aware that people want to hear the story um, and they want to, they want to know and they, and they trust producers um, to, to tell them the truth. And frankly, I find that really encouraging um, and, and something that is an opportunity. Yeah. A couple more points there, Ashton, with the data, um, our numbers are up. 
up to 33% of cons- the, the consumers researching how food is produced. So while consumers are seeking more, I think the ag community is doing better a, a better job of, of being there where the consumer is looking for more information. Uh, in addition to that, 48% of consumers agree that food companies are transparent about how food is produced. So any way that the ag industry can help those food companies be even more transparent, consumers are just, pardon the pun, eating that up. Yeah. Where there wow. is, I know, sorry. Wow. There is a sharp <laughs> increase from uh, our last survey in 2018 to now. There are more and more consumers, maybe they had more time at home yeah. researching those products, uh, but more and more are looking for that that transparency. And with that transparency becomes, you know, there there is more trust as that transparency increases. So John, you say that this is kind of an opportunity for, you know, maybe more transparency or just to build better relationships between producer and consumer. Do either of you have any perspective, outlook, or maybe some advice on how producers can take this opportunity and, you know, build a better relationship with their clients or their consumers? Sure. I I think... I think one thing to keep in mind is, and I, I, I don't have the exact number in my head or in front of me, but, you know, the majority, the vast majority of Americans are now generations away from the farm, like three to five generations away from the farm. And that, that's, that's kind of a newish thing um, because it wasn't that long ago when, you know, people were, were much closer, you know, either grandma or grandpa had a farm and I, you know, I was there during the summer and I knew that's not really true for the vast majority of Americans anymore. And so it, it's, I think it's, it's critical um, for agriculture to be able to, as now, I think, as you said, beautifully kind of meet people where they're at and, um, and sort of, and sort of share the story. And, th- and that can be as simple as, um, you know, talking to the people in the meat case in the local grocery store uh, and, and talk about, you know, how, how that beef and pork and chicken was raised. Um, and or if, if they've got if they've got clients just really kind of talking about that um, and, and sharing that story. You know, we work with um, uh, and have worked with for a long time, uh, a local dairy um, here in the in, uh, we're based in Kansas City. So here in the in the Kansas City market, um, they launched um, a couple of years ago a home delivery service that was not only just their milk, but also other. We were talking earlier, Ashton, about the local food shed, other local producers, so local egg producers, local meat producers, um, you know, local produce producers, and they sort of launched this delivery service, kind of bringing the milkman back, if you will. And and really began sort of delivering uh, to to all these homes. It's been a fantastic success. And in fact, during the pandemic, their business was up nine hundred and eighty nine percent, literally. Um, so uh, all so almost a thousand percent. And and through that opportunity, you know, people got to learn about local producers. And I think. And I think anytime there's an opportunity to to share, to educate, 
and and not just consumers, but boy, if you get an opportunity to talk to someone from brand, what a big opportunity because a lot of brand managers, you know, they might be selling grass-fed milk. They might really not know, you know, the kind of production it takes uh, to bring that to bring that grass-fed milk to market. So, you know, even even food marketers don't don't always understand what's going on on the farm. And I, I think anytime we've got an opportunity to educate, we, we ought to be doing it. And looking through, you know, the rest of 2021, and as we hopefully get into a post-pandemic world sometime here in the near future, do you think that we're going to continue to see what we're seeing right now and what we recently saw in 2020 on, you know, consumer demand and consumer behaviors, or do you suspect that there might be some change? We really see this trend continuing. We think that consumers have started to really, really crave that information and the transparency from our ag system and they're just going to continue to want more of it. You know, the, the brands that are gaining ground and succeeding are those transparent and forthcoming brands. And, and consumers are just going to want more and more of that. I also think people will um, continue to seek that that joy and comfort uh, in their food. And so I, I think the cooking at home um, trend will not go away though. I think when we're truly post pandemic, I still think there will be a great amount of celebrating <laughs> by mm-hmm. spending as much time, uh, going to, to, uh, restaurants as, as possible. But a, a lot of that's been taking place. Um, and, but I, I do believe the cooking at home trend and, and just seeking that joy and comfort in a real steak, a real burger, um, some, some, uh, some fresh eggs, all all of that uh, we see we see hanging on because you know I think w- one thing to consider too is that when the supply chain got disrupted, you know, as American consumers, maybe on the fourth of July, like on July third, you might go in to the grocery store and maybe the hot dog buns are a little scarce because you know there's been there's been a run on them. But in, in those early days of the pandemic where you're seeing, you know, real scarcity on American shopping shelves, that was pretty sobering for, 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 the, for the American consumer. And so I think there's a sort of a newfound appreciation of, oh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, this is an automatic. Uh, and uh, and I, I think there's a there's an appreciation for that. And, and I, again, I think it only has people asking more questions about, you know, where, where am I going to be able to sort of get this good nutritious food uh, that, that my family needs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this trend, but I've seen people talking about how they want to romanticize their life. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening, you know, in the kitchen right now is they're romanticizing cooking and being at home and celebrating, you know, each day as it comes. But I just want to thank you guys once more for coming on and for our audience members who might want to read a little bit more of the research and the latest release of Food Think, where can they find that online? You can go right to signaltheory.com. 
and you can look for our food think link there in the top navigation click through and download. And you'll also be able to access years and years of the consumer perceptions and insights that we've found back since 2012. 2012. Jeez, yeah. it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. <laughs> well, again, Allie and John, thank you so much for coming on today. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much. We Ashton. appreciate it. Great talking with you. Thanks to Allie and John for coming on and talking about food think. I definitely think that our food system is an interesting one. And considering, you know, the impact of COVID-19, I definitely enjoy learning more about our food system and really what consumers are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry I missed that one, Ashton, because you've had a lot of great interviews lately. And I know we've got uh, another 30 under 30. We're wrapping up that segment pretty quickly here. So we'll be chatting with one of our last cohorts tomorrow. And actually, you're going to be out tomorrow, aren't you, Ashton? I am. I'm visiting my family for the final time this summer. I don't get to see them too much whenever I'm actually in school during the fall and spring semesters. So going to be spending a little bit of time with them. But you and Dawson are going to take over things while I'm out. So folks, you'll have to tune in for that interview and to hear a little bit more from Delaney and Dawson tomorrow at adnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.